And the difference between early detection and ignoring it because you don't want to know there's a problem is the difference between life and death. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Deborah Bowman, welcome back to the Rebel Health Coach podcast for episode number two on breast cancer. Great, thank you. We did episode number one on implants, and if you'd like to go back and listen to that, you can. This episode is going to be part two, which is going to cover triggers and causes of breast cancer specifically, but there will be takeaways that apply to all cancer as we proceed. Deborah, tell us a little bit about yourself again and and how you got into this field of functional medicine. Well, I'm uh, so glad you asked, actually. My personal experience is that I'm a two-time cancer survivor. I had uh, cervical cancer and then nearly 15 years later was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer in both breasts. One was a tumor that had involvement of lymph nodes, and the other one was something that they call DCIS, which is uh, considered like a, a pre-metastatic cancer. And in reality, many women who are going through cancer treatment, they're caught at the DCIS level, and um, it's called ductal carcinoma in situ, uh, which is really important to know because one of the things to know about cancer is the staging. And when you're deciding treatments and intervention, it's really important to know the staging of cancer. So anyway, I was diagnosed with DCIS on one side and an actual mass on the other. And I uh, went through traditional Western medicine and saw all the surgeons and you know had the treatment that they recommended. What I found to be really challenging, and this also happened the first time, is that once the treatment was done, uh, all of a sudden... Uh, it was like, okay, well, no more treatment, go forth and conquer, you know, you're clear for the moment. And as I was talking to my doctors about, well, what do I do now to make sure it doesn't come back or, you know, make sure I don't get metastatic cancer. One doctor told me that if it came back, it would present as a metastatic uh, cancer. And I was like, what do I do now? And they're like, well, here, take these, you know, estrogen blocking medications for the next 10 years and come back yearly and get a tumor marker and make sure the cancer doesn't come back. And my attitude was like, you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be something I can do besides take pills and come back in a year, you know, which would be by the time symptoms presented. And so it was from that, you know, my attitude is like, I'm sorry, taking pills and hoping for the best really isn't the best cancer management plan. And that was when I started looking at everything else I could do. And through that process, started becoming more aware of lifestyle factors. I got into health coaching. I went through a health coaching program. And from that, that led me into functional medicine, which you know is just this really complex and evolving and interesting area that really looks at you know biochemistry and what's happening in someone's individual body and how you can really support them. Uh, with, you know, different, uh, what's considered more alternative and natural ways. And, you know, ever since I found that, that's really become the focus of my work is really how to work with people and support them and empower them. And, 
you know, let them know that they have some control over their health. And what I've decided to do is specialize in working with women who are actually recovering from breast cancer and, and breast cancer treatment. You know, that's the thing. It's like they might be told your treatment is over, but they still have chronic fatigue and exhaustion and neuropathy and lymphedema. And there's a lot of uh, brain fog is one of the most common complaints. So there's a lot of things that go on for a long time after treatment that really affects someone's quality of life and their health. But there's not a lot of support out there for that. Much of our model is really geared towards Western medicine and chemotherapy and arresting the disease, but there's not a particular focus on how to rebuild your health for the rest of your life. And that's where I think functional medicine and the principles of functional medicine really come into play and can really give someone a sense of of power and control back in their lives. Right, right, right. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, we're we're in a situation these days where in the 1900s, cancer was one in 80, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Now we're one in eight and men are one in a thousand, I believe. But breast cancer is also a man disease and can be a man disease, I should say. So, but nearly 40,000 people die every year from breast cancer. Right. So 95% of all cancer is caused by environmental toxicity. 5% of cancer is caused by genetic mutations, and we'll get into that. But let's talk about the cancer diagnosis. A cancer diagnosis can barrel into your life like a runaway freight train. Yep, it's about the most frightening thing I think you can go through because I would dare to say that most cancer patients, what they hear is they're going to die. I, it's such a disempowering feeling. All of a sudden you're thrown into not only the world of the unknown, but probably your worst fear. And you're getting all this information thrown at you and having to make some really serious and profound and lifelong decisions when you're not really prepared for that. It's a really overwhelming experience. I heard somebody recently describe it as you have to process everything and yet you're in such a state of shock that you process nothing. Well, I mean... One minute you're at the doctor's office getting something minor checked out. The next moment you, the doctor's coming back and saying, hey, you have cancer. And then your doctor, even though they mean well, bombards you with a whirlwind of treatments. Exactly. It's, this is, but I want to take a step back and say, look, this isn't like you're having a heart attack that we need to fix this now. It's something that needs to be fixed, but there is some time to sit back and say, okay, let me absorb this. Right, that's a very important point. We live in a system where cancer is treated like this life-threatening, acute problem. And in reality, it's a chronic problem. And there are estimates that by the time you get diagnosed with cancer, it's not something that developed in the two months before it was diagnosed. It's something that's been developing for sometimes 10 to 20 years. Uh, because of the microscopic cellular changes. And by the time you actually detect something, you know, it's been around for a long time. So one of the really important things that you can offer is to really help somebody understand that if they need to take a couple of weeks or, you know, a month to really not only, you know, kind of get over the shock and kind of sort through some of the choices, but to get their lives in order. I mean, that's always been something as as a nurse that I've, always been an advocate of is getting getting you know 
letting people have the time to get their lives in order and get their and, and psychologically get themselves in line with what they have to enter into. I mean, if you're a woman that has young kids and, you know, working a job and, you know, or, you know, has a family, all those things have to be, you know, kind of addressed before you jump into a treatment that that's going to be debilitating in many cases for months, you know, it, it's, um, it's giving people the time. This is not an acute illness. This is a chronic illness. And giving people that time and space to really sort through that is one of the most important things that we can do. And gives people the time and space to develop the questions that they need to ask their providers. You know, it's like there are specific questions that uh, you're not in a place to ask when you first get dealt the news that, that you have cancer. I mean, your immediate thought is, well, get it out of my body. And the sooner, the better. But, you know, giving yourself a little time and space gives you the time to really go into it more informed and more calm and making sure that you've got, you know, your questions answered and your business taken care of. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that this is, there's a lot of options available on the table. And I think that you should, in my opinion, of course, I've never been diagnosed with cancer, such as yourself, but, you know, get to know what your options are. And if it means hiring a functional medicine practitioner just to give an in, you know, just to get some ideas, that's, I think that's a viable option in my opinion. I do too. And it's one of the reasons that I decided to specialize in this because there, it was after I went through this whole experience that I started looking for a functional medicine practitioner who could help me sort through my options in terms of 10 years of taking pretty aggressive medication. And it was difficult to find. And there, you know, I really do not recommend that people go on Google and start looking because <laughs> there's a lot of opinions and a lot of information out there. But there are integrative medicine practitioners and integrative oncology practitioners who not only can talk to you about the best, you know, options between traditional treatment and um, uh, functional medicine. I, I, I really don't have a better word than alternative, but I hate the word alternative. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they've actually done research that shows that there are certain supplements and certain things that you can do to make chemo, to make the cells more receptive to chemotherapy. So even if you're going through that treatment, there are things that you can do to enhance your health. And, you know, perhaps they don't need to use as much or as strong of chemotherapy if you're merging it with more integrative approaches. And there's certainly a lot that you can do as you go through treatment and when it's done. One of the main problems that most people have when they're going through chemotherapy is appetite and loss of weight and loss of muscle mass and, um, you know, some real nutritional challenges that I think functional medicine practitioners are uniquely trained to help people address. Uh, uh, yeah, 100%. 110%, I'll give you that. All right, let's talk about genetics first. Uh, you know, one of the things I hear a lot, and I'm sure you've heard, is it's in my genes or it runs in my family. And of course, we're talking about the genetic form or the, the genetics, but a lot, of, a lot of epigenetics have proven that that can go both ways. And you can actually, epigenetics and controlling your gene expression is also something very important. But, you know, like Angelina Jolie has the BRCA gene or 
has been diagnosed with the BRCA gene. So she went and had a double mass just to prevent herself from getting cancer. So let's talk about the genetic, the 5% that get it from genetics. And then we'll go into the, the other root causes from there. Well, that's really great that you brought that up. And um, you mentioned something earlier, and I really want to really highlight this so that people understand this, is that men get breast cancer. They get it a lot less frequently than women for obvious reasons, but men have breast tissue and, and men get breast cancer. So in terms of the whole body of people who deal with this, men sometimes can be diagnosed at a more advanced stage because no one thinks to check them for breast cancer. Another issue with that is that women um, are getting breast cancer earlier and earlier. Um, I know several women who have been diagnosed in their 30s. I know one woman who was diagnosed when she was 29. Um, it's not just something that happens with women who are older. So those two things are really important to understand. And what's really important to take away from that is that regardless of all the testing they can do and, you know, mammograms versus thermography and all of the testing they can do, really the, the most proactive thing that you can do is breast self-exam. There, you know, there's just nothing that replaces that in terms of early detection. And the difference between early detection and ignoring it because you don't want to know there's a problem is the difference between life and death. You know, if you catch it early, you, you know, of course can treat it and oftentimes remove it, you know, with what they call um, clear margins. But if you're waiting, like I, I think it was Elizabeth Edwards, uh, the vice presidential candidate's wife, she knew there was a problem and she didn't want to face it. And so by the time she really noticed it, she had something that was the size of a golf ball, I believe. And it was actually terminal for her, you know, and, yeah. and really, I want to emphasize early detection. Yeah. It's your best chance of, of actually conquering it. So going to the genetic factors, you know, I, I think that epigenetics is actually an area that falls in the functional medicine realm, perhaps more so than in the medical realm. And epigenetics is really a, an emerging field of study where it's really looking at all of the factors that affect our gene expression. That's, that's, uh, and uh, what our bodies do that either express or suppress what our genetic potential is or our genetic blueprint. And that's really important to understand because people do feel like, oh, cancer runs in my family or diabetes runs in my family or, you know, another chronic illness. So I'm just doomed to get it. And in reality, what they're finding out is that a genetic predisposition is just that. It may increase your chances of expressing those genes, but a genetic predisposition with a few exceptions, genetic predisposition is a blueprint that you're handed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to live that out. It's just what has happened in the past. That's, that's what genetics are, what's been uh, passed on to you, you know, from your parents or grandparents or through the genes. And what they're finding is that lifestyle choices and lifestyle factors have a far greater impact on what is going to be expressed genetically than what you're actually given in your genetic pool. What they're, you know, there's different estimates, but, you know, an estimate of five to 20% can impact your chances of expressing something from a genetic uh, 
perspective, but they've estimated particularly in breast cancer and in many cancers that your nutrition and life, well, nutrition particularly has a far greater impact, like 35 to 40% on genetic expression and other factors such as um, exercise and body mass and stress management and all the other things that we actually do have control over have a far greater impact on whether you express a certain genetic predisposition than whether or not you're just born with it. Right. Right. And I like to say this is, or I don't know where I heard this somewhere along the line, but disease or cancer is created by your lifestyle but disease and cancers can also be reversed by your lifestyle. And that goes right into the feeds right back into the epigenetics is, you know, some of the, some of the triggers that I've found that during my research for this podcast, you know, one of them is first of all, the standard American diet. Right. Uh, I think that's one of the number one triggers in my opinion is that the sad or standard American diet of processed and packaged foods and poison foods, that are in the, they make up 9% of what's on the grocery store shelves, 90% of what's on the grocery store shelves is, is a big trigger for this. Absolutely. You know, um, we have, I mean, I think that, that they've actually proven that, you know, particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, our society has really moved towards more processed food, more fast food, and more uh, what they consider simple carbohydrate foods that don't have a lot of nutritional value. And in that period of time, there's also been a marked increase in the incidence of cancer. One of the other major things that that people don't think about is our unprecedented exposure to toxins. They have estimated that since World War II, 85,000 to 100,000 toxins have been introduced into our um, everyday exposure. Most of them have never been evaluated for safety. And many of them are actually being, we're being exposed through what we're eating. You know, one of the biggest things is glyphosate, which is Roundup, which is what they treat most commercial crops with. And so you can think if they're, if they're spraying something, you know, that is meant to prevent or kill organisms, you know, in the field, what's it doing to us as we ingest it? So many of the toxins that we're exposed to are actually coming through our food and water. And if there's anything that you can do is really learn about that and really be proactive about reducing the amount of toxins in your life. And there are many things that you can do that you're actually in control of. Going to the environmental toxins or the toxins, period. I mean, those are a lot of those herbicides and pesticides and insecticides are chemicals that mimic, mimic, mimic estrogen. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, one what, what of the things that, that I've, you know, estrogen dominance is a big one. Is in my opinion, is one of the big ones for for cancer. Is as a estrogen dominance, and so if you're adding estrogen mimicking chemicals to your system, you know, it's not good. Right, right, and that whole discussion really, you know, breaks down the fact that many of these chemicals, when they come into our body. You know, as I said, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways they come into our body, but through our food, what we drink, through the plastics that we put our food in, which is an unprecedented um, proportion, um, as those chemicals come into our body, they do. They act as xenoestrogens, which in, when I explain it to clients, I basically tell them it acts like a fake estrogen. The chemical molecules are very similar to what actual estrogen is in our body. So those chemical 
um, fake estrogens bind to our receptors, the body thinks it's operating on estrogen and what it's actually operating on is chemical contaminants. Right. And, you know, that is one of the major factors in, in terms of estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance means, you know, you've got a lot of free-floating estrogen in your body and it's affecting men and women and their health in many ways. You know, one of the things that has become more of a phrase in the last you know, decade is is man boobs and men developing what are considered feminine characteristics. And that is actually one of the main symptoms in men of estrogen dominance. And in women, it affects weight gain, it affects moods, it affects their menstrual cycle, it affects symptoms of PMS. You know, there's a lot of different ways these fake estrogens affect our health. But yeah, in terms of cancer, it's, it's one of the main contributing factors that we can actually do something about. Right. We're not even just talking about herbicides, pesticides, insecticides. We're talking about chemicals from our carpeting, furniture, cleaning solutions, artificial air fresheners, scented candles, pots and pans, Teflon. You know, And then when you get into the whole avenue of lotions and potions that you put on your body, I think that the reason for the younger age of breast cancer or cancer period, but breast cancer in general for this is because girls are starting to put makeup on sooner. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they're putting on makeup at a younger age. They're going on birth control at a younger age and they're putting lotions and potions on their body at a younger age. So, I mean, am I, am I, am I, am I onto something there or what? No, I think, you know, if there's, if there's anything to learn in terms of what we actually have control over is that there are not only contaminants, but there are actually heavy metals in the makeup that women put on every day. You know, years ago, they, they actually proved that there was some lead in, in many of the commercially produced lipsticks, you know, and, and if people think about it, what we put on our body is actually absorbed very effectively. And if you look at, at any of these lotions and creams and, you know, a woman can put on 10 to 15 creams a day between all the different facial creams that, you know, are, are recommended. Deodorants, you know, I've known for a long time they have aluminum in them. You know, toothpaste has um, triclosan in it, which is known to be a, a carcinogen in people. They've just managed to convince the FDA that small amounts of triclosan are okay as long as they come in at a certain number. You know, it, these are the things that we have control over. That's why, you know, that's been the big push between be, uh, about organic foods is to decrease the amount of, of um, chemical pesticide exposure you're exposed to. Finding um, creams and cosmetics and personal care products that are um, organic. And, you know, there are a few companies out there who swear by their products, you know, that, that they're natural and they're not you know, they're chemical free. You know, another uh, uh, aspect in terms of our food supply is that milk and dairy, um, because of the way those foods are, you know, commercial processing of those industries are, those, uh, the animals tend to be uh, pumped up with antibiotics and steroids and growth hormone. So if you think the animals are, are being given that, it comes through and it's part of 
you know, the meat that comes through to us. So we're ingesting those products too. So that's the big push between getting grass-fed meat as opposed to commercially uh, processed meat. So all of those things are actually choices that we can make. Right, right. And one of the things I wanted to say about birth control pills is that I heard this years ago from an emergency room doctor that I worked with. And he said that women who are basically now in their 30s and 40s, it's the first generation of women who have never experienced their natural period and their natural hormonal cycle because societally we have gone to birth control pills at such a young age that women have never been able to establish their own hormonal balance. So going into treating those women, you know, sometimes that's the challenge is, is getting past the chemicals and drugs that they're putting in their body to allow them, you know, to, to find what their normal chemical and hormonal balance is. So it's a, it's a, a definitely a major factor. The other thing is, I'll put a, a link in the show notes to this, but if you're wondering about your makeup and whatever you put on your skin, the EWG.org skincare, I believe it is, but EWG.org, environmentalworkinggroup.org, uh, has a, an app. It has an app for your phone that you can, while you're shopping at the grocery store or wherever you get your products, you can look it up. So I think you can actually scan it. I think you can actually. And it's the, the, the cosmetic portion of that EWG is a, is a huge database um, of products and uh, uh, substances and, and cleaners. And it's a, it's a massive database that tells you how contaminated they consider it to be. The, the cosmetic branch of that is called Skin Deep, EWG.org, okay, called Skin Deep. Okay, good. And one thing, I, this is an interesting little factoid, um, that I adopted parrots many years ago. And uh, when we were learning how to take care of them, the people in the pet store told us, oh, make sure you don't cook with Teflon. And of course, most of our, our kitchenware is lined with Teflon. And um, it turns out that Teflon actually emits an invisible gas that birds are so sensitive to that it will kill them in a matter of minutes. And I remember standing there thinking, well, if it's killing birds, what is it doing to us? You know, so, you know, I mean, that's just one of the major contaminants in our homes because it's actually very hard for me. I have to be very careful when I buy pots and pans and crock pots and all of that kind of stuff, that it's not lined with Teflon because so much of it is lined with Teflon and it's a major source of chemical exposure in our homes. Yep, yep. Let's talk about cell phones and for the women out there who put their cell phones in their bra. Oh yeah, that's a big one. Uh, electrical pollution and EMFs. And for the guys who put it next to your, in your pocket, you know, stop doing that. Right next to your private parts. Yeah. Right. Here, here you go. Let's zap those babies with some EMFs. Right. Right. Well, you know, this is really interesting because when these things come out, I usually, I'm, I'm pretty conservative. So I usually hang around for a while before I just take it as the gospel truth. This uh, whole electromagnetic exposure was one of those things that I was like, well, does this really have any validity or not? And it's really interesting. Several months ago, I was working with a client um, and he was actually in the phone business and actually in the cell phone industry when they first came out. 
So um, it was really interesting. We had a long conversation about it one day, and he's like, oh, yeah, the electromagnetic um, energy that you're exposed to is amazing. And this is like one of those industry-known secrets, you know, sort of like the tobacco industry knew for decades that it was poisoning people, but, you know, that wasn't common knowledge. And he's like, oh, no, this is really common knowledge. If you think about the electromagnetic energy that takes to connect to a cell phone tower 40 miles away, imagine how much it's, it's putting off when it's right next to you. Not only um, in your bra, which is, I just found out, like I've been asking women, like, do you put this in your bra? And a, a, a surprising number of women do. And, I, and they've actually done scans that show little microtumors in women's uh, breasts that actually take the shape of cell phones. I mean, it, it actually is penetrating wow. the skin and exposing women. Uh, you know, and, and so if you think about that, that's major. It's also pretty significant when you're putting cell phones next to your ear, you know, and it's emitting, you know, that kind of energy um, into brain tissue. So I, I think somebody told me last week when we were talking about this that I can't remember, I think uh, Perlmutter, who's a, a, a pretty uh, well-known doctor in, in functional medicine, uh, I think they were saying that he only he he uses a selfie stick whenever he's on his phone to make sure that it's as far away from him as possible. I'm trying to think who that is. I, I it's uh, David Perlmutter. Is it he, Perlmutter uh, or I think that's his name? But yeah, I might it's, be one of the, it's one of those doctors that was in the functional medicine realm. But yeah, he uses a selfie stick to talk on his phone. Right. Right. Yeah. Somebody told me that recently. Yeah. Let's get into uh, what I've got as trigger number three, and that's physical and hormonal stress, which includes oxidative stress in the body. So stress is, A, a number, one of the causes of, of all disease, and it's something that we don't, a lot of people don't pay attention to, but we live in a stressful world. So stress, controlling your stress is very important. And uh, we're talking about physical and hormonal stress. Right. So uh, we both have gone to the uh, same functional medicine training and um, our instructor, Tracy Harrison, I, she, she has a really great line that I've heard her say several times, which is stop joking about stress and do something about it. It's the major underpinning of your health. I think I added that part. But um, actually, before I went into functional medicine, I actually uh, trained in mind-body medicine, which is really all about the effects of stress in our lives and things that we can do to handle it better. And one of the things that I really like to bring to people's attention is that we do joke about stress. Oh, I'm really stressed out or you know, work is really stressful or home life is really stressful. But what is important for people to understand is that we have a perception of stress but the fact is, is that stress causes chemical changes in our body. It causes our body to secrete adrenaline. Um, and if we're in a constant state of stress, we're constantly secreting a stress hormone that the purpose of adrenaline is to prepare our bodies to flee something that is life-threatening. So if you're being chased by a wild animal, you've got a lot of adrenaline. You know, the stories that they... they uh, I always find this really interesting where they'll say there's a traffic um, accident and people have that superhuman strength to actually lift a car to get people out alive. That all comes from a stress hormone being pumped through your body. 
And the effects of that hormone is to uh, hormonally and from a blood circulation perspective, shut everything to being able to deal with a life-threatening situation. So um, it's shunting uh, blood and 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 uh, hormones to your muscles uh, to be able to run fast, to have superhuman strength, to be able to live and you know outlive whatever the threat is. It's not sending uh, all of that blood supply to your stomach, to digestion, to uh, the things that that we need to have work optimally for our overall health. Right. Um, if you think about it, if you're running from a wild animal, it doesn't make sense that you would stop in the middle of it to eat lunch. So, you know, the body doesn't prioritize that as a place to, to send blood and, and chemical and um, not chemicals, but uh, hormones. So to think about it that way, about a very physical response, it really hopefully will encourage people to think about what sources of stress do you have in, in your life? I mean, are, you know, is spilling your coffee on the way out the door trying to get the kids to school and fighting with your husband? Are those things that really are life-threatening or are those just habitual lifestyle issues that if we learn to handle differently, we wouldn't be experiencing the physiological aspects of stress? When it comes to cancer and how it affects cancer, the, you know, really the, the dominant thinking is that going back to those factors that affect what what genes are expressed or what genes are locked down, they have actually proven that stress and those, the, the damage that comes from the, chem, from the hormones, I keep saying chemicals, but from the hormones being uh, pumped in our body actually affect that gene expression. Mm. And it's, you know, like our food, stress is actually one of the major lifestyle factors that we can have some control over. And it doesn't mean that you have to become a Buddhist monk or somebody who you know, meditates, you know, three hours a day, you can do some very simple things that actually just take a matter of minutes in terms of breathing and bringing more oxygen into your body, which physiologically prompts your body to go into more of a a rest and digest mode or into a relaxation mode as opposed to this very high-strung stress mode. And it's one of the things that they've actually associated with most chronic illness. You know, uh, you know, they've actually proven that if you teach people who are dealing with diabetics, diabetes to do some simple breathing exercises, that it actually improves their circulation, and oftentimes they can reduce the amount of medication they're on. It actually is a benefit to anybody, but particularly people who are dealing with these chronic diseases that oftentimes, unfortunately, are getting worse over time and not getting better. Hmm. In the world of, you know, functional medicine, what they're really, you know, what seems to be the underpinning of most illnesses, oxidative stress, which is, I think most people have probably at some level heard about free radicals. Um, Oxidative stress causes a, a great number of free radicals in our body, which actually goes back to damaging that the DNA and encouraging the expression of diseases that we don't want expressed. Um, So uh, oxidative damage and inflammation. So that, you know, almost everything that we do causes some level of, of inflammation. And there are definitely specific things we can do through diet, nutrition, supplementation, stress management, getting good sleep is actually a major thing that most people don't get and they don't get enough sleep. And all of those things have been proven to improve markers of inflammation and oxidative stress. Uh, but your body also needs to be able to detox too. If your body's not detoxing, your liver, your toxification pathways are not working correctly. 
that's something that you need to take a look at, and that includes pooping. I mean, if you're if you're only if you're not pooping once a day, you've got a problem. Right, right. You know, it's really funny that you mentioned that because uh, I, to tell you the truth, I've never met a man who doesn't have his daily constitutional. It's really important to men, but with women, it's not uncommon to hear women say, "Oh, I I don't go to the bathroom." you know, any more often than every three or four days. Constipation is a, a huge issue with women. And um, it's, it's interesting that you bring up detoxification pathways, because this is actually one of the things that, that I work with my clients on quite a bit. Right now, detoxification is like a really hot health topic. Right. Everyone's doing detox, you know, programs. Gwyneth Paltrow has, you know, a detox regime, you know, in, in her in her uh, business, you know, detox is really kind of um, a sexy thing to look at right now. But detox means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And some of the detox programs that are put out there, uh, I don't consider to be all that healthy. I heard somebody talking a couple of weeks ago about something called a water detox, which to tell you the truth, I don't know a lot about. But the fact is, is that, is that I believe that these detoxes not only sometimes can be effective, but if they're not done correctly, they can actually create more problems than not. So they're, uh, you know, instead of jumping on a detox program, you see, you know, advertised on, you know, the local magazine. Um, I really think that people need to learn more about that. Right. And when, when you and I talk about detox, we're talking about the actual physical, physiological process of detoxing uh, substances through our body. And that means it goes through our liver and it's a very complicated, you know, involved process. But basically when we're talking about detox, we're talking about a, a safe detox that really addresses how well our livers work and detox substances, which is probably the hallmark and foundation of overall good health. But I really just like to caution people to not jump on any detox program they see coming through a commercial because it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's safe or effective. Yeah, I want to go a little bit in depth on that and talk about the difference between the detox and the cleanse. Because there's a lot of cleanses on the market, 12-day, 10-day, 3-day, 2-day, you know, and a true detox gets through the detoxes the liver out and actually cleans out the detoxification pathway, including the cell, it gets to a cellular level to clean out your heavy metals. And I mean, there's another detox for cellular level. It gets to, into your, you know, cleans out the heavy metals out of your system also. So you have to take a look at this and say, am I doing a three-day juice cleanse or am I really doing a detox? Right. And one of the things that I would say about a detox is that depending on the health challenges that you're working with, um, there's a time and a place and a way to do a detox. And, you know, once again, I always err on the side of safety. I want to tell you a story. I was actually uh, working with a client a couple months ago, and she actually was dealing with breast implant illness, which goes back to what we were talking about in our first uh, episode. And she's in the middle of experiencing active symptoms from breast implant illness and toxicity. You know, that's what, that's what ha is happening with breast implants. It's putting off chemicals and vapors and substances in our body that are acting, you know, that are toxins. 
And she had gone to somebody, um, a practitioner, and he had said, oh, well, you need to detox. And he put her, he's like, here, take this and take that and put her on a couple of things and said, go forth and conquer and be well. Well, she was anything but well. You know, she, she took these, they, she took some substances that are considered to be, you know, I think it was chlorella and uh, cilantro and, you know, things that are often used in detox programs. But her particular physiology and what was going on for her at the time, it was not the time for her to be adding things that were going to actively put her in detox. And basically what a detox does when you're doing a, a, a medical detox or doing a structured detox is it's actually gathering toxins to be excreted from your body. So you can imagine if you're already compromised, putting that kind of stress on your body is not really something that's indicated all the time. And she went into a horrible reaction just hours after taking the supplement she was given. And she basically said she wound up in an emergency room several hours later, having a near psychotic anxiety reaction um, just from, from taking these uh, traditional detox supplements. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, they were bad or, or there wouldn't be a time and place for her to take it, but, or to do a structured detox, but that's really something to do when you're very stable, you're not in the middle of having active symptoms from whatever you're dealing with. And there, as I said, there's a time and a place and a way to do that with proper medical supervision that is not going to give you, you know, a lot of side effects that in many ways makes the problem worse. You know, I think if you're going to do a detox, you have to really understand and respect the fact that you're actually detoxing chemicals. The body actually stores chemicals in many ways in order to take it out of your circulation. It's a self-protective mechanism. So if you're going to do something to reintroduce those toxins into your system, you need to really be in a very healthy place to be able to process those. And as you said, one of the most important things is to make sure that you're not constipated and make sure that, you know, your GI system is working well. Yep. And on that regard, I want to mention one other thing that's a little off topic, is that toxins are largely stored in our fat cells. So when people go on diets and they lose a great deal of weight or, in a, you know, 20 pounds, you're actually mobilizing toxins into your system. So when people are going through, you know, mood swings and depression and cravings and a lot of those, uh, you know, they get to a plateau and they can't lose any more weight, oftentimes they've been mobilizing toxins into their system. It's not just because of the particular diet they're on. It can actually, they can be actually in a state of toxicity because, they're losing fat, and that's one of the main ways that our body protects us from toxins is storing it in our fat, as well as storing estrogen. So you're releasing a great deal of estrogen, you're releasing a great deal of toxins into your body when you lose weight. So once again, that's just something you need to be aware of and kind of do with some supervision and some guidance. And, and toxicity, there's another, another thing I want to bring in too, is that you know toxicity, we also take, need to take a look at our dental our dental history too. Right. And, right. Uh, and fluoride toothpaste is another one I want to throw in there too. So you know, I, I like to say that nine out of 10 of doctors weren't right. Fluoride's not as good as it should be. As it right. right. Well, you know, when it comes to cancer expression, you know, what they've, the current thinking is it's not just, you know, one thing. It's actually multifactorial. 
Right. You know, and there's a lot of things that are affecting cancer. As a matter of fact, there's not one particular kind of cell in a cancer or in a tumor. It's actually many different cells at many different levels of what they call differentiation, which is why they sometimes, even if they're doing traditional chemotherapy, have to give two or three different um, uh, combinations of chemo because it's not just one thing. What causes us to express cancer is not just one thing. And so all of these things that we're talking about, you know, stress and the toxins we're exposed to, all of those things play a role. It may, it's not just one thing that's going to trip the wire. It's the uh, cumulative effect of a lifetime of exposure. And so, you know, actually, not only toothpaste has fluoride and triclosan and things that we know to be harmful, but our drinking water is probably one of the huge sources of contaminants. And it's got fluoride, it's got chlorine, you know, actually, it's got a lot of things in it that, you know, that were never there. They, they actually just recently... You know, they're talking about, uh, you know, the byproducts of people throwing prescriptions into the toilet. That affects our drinking water. You know, there's, um, there's a huge amount of chemicals coming through our drinking water, through toothpaste, through cosmetics, and all of those things we can address. You know, I've, I've got a carbon filter not only in my kitchen and my drinking water, but another huge area that people don't think of is actually having a shower filter. Because right. if you think about all those things that are coming through our drinking water, and many people do know that, they have Brita's, which aren't the best filters, but better than nothing. But all of those uh, substances are actually coming through our in, in our bath and shower water. I found this out years ago because I, I have an underlying asthma that uh, get, usually gets triggered when I get sick. And I realized that every time I got out of the shower, I was actually mildly wheezing. And I couldn't figure that out. And it was actually when I started looking into that, that it turns out that chlorine, which is coming through our, our water system, actually gets aerosolized in hot water. So you're actually breathing it in. Wow. From a medical standpoint, I can tell you there's no faster way to get something, a chemical into your body than by breathing it in. It passes the blood-brain barrier very quickly, and it affects you very quickly. If, if we have a patient who's asthmatic, that's why they give them breathing treatments, because it's the quickest, one of the quickest and most effective ways to get a chemical into somebody's body. People who smoke understand that. That's why they get high from smoking, because it crosses that blood-brain barrier when it's coming through the mucosa and through the lungs. And so if you think about the contaminants that are coming through in our water, it's coming through, um, you know, a nice hot long shower is actually a chemical bath. So actually putting a shower filter on is one of the main things that you can do to reduce that type of con contamination. So we've covered a lot here. I want to talk about a drug that is quite often used for breast cancer. Uh, and that's tamoxifen. Yes, but all tamoxifen. Oh, <laughs> tamoxifen is often given. I mean, you can. You're. It also causes cancer. Am I correct? One of the potential side effects is it can predispose you to other types of cancer. And that's like it's a class two carcinogen, I believe, right? Uh, I'm not sure about the class, but okay. So to to explain tamoxifen. There are certain cancers that are considered to be hormone-mediated, and breast, some breast cancers are, 
are considered to be hormone mediated. So, and uh, prostate cancer, and uh, because men do have estrogen receptors. So, it's one of the things that when they, when someone is diagnosed with cancer, it's one of the things they look at in terms of staging. They look to see if it's estrogen and progesterone uh, sensitive. In the scheme of things, it's considered to be somewhat of a better prognosis or in terms of treatment to be an estrogen positive cancer because they actually have a receptor that they can target with chemotherapy. Whereas some of the other forms of breast cancer, like um, something called triple negative breast cancer, there's not necessarily an estrogen receptor that they can target. And so treatment doesn't tend to be as effective. So one of the markers that they'll look at in these kind of presentations is estrogen receptivity. Okay. So once they, you know, once you go through the treatment, which is, you know, some combination of surgery, chemotherapy, and sometimes radiation, they're now looking at your chances of recurrence, which is affected by whether or not it affected lymph nodes, it's affected by the size of the tumor, it's affected by how fast the tumor grows. There's about four to six different markers they look for. And then they, they come up with a, an estimate of what your chances of recurrence and metastasis is. So an estrogen receptivity is a major estrogen positive or estrogen negative is a huge factor. So if you're estrogen positive, it means that these uh, cancerous cells respond to estrogen. So the thinking is that if they block estrogen receptors and they block estrogen uptake in the cancer cells, then that increases your chance of, of not having cancer come back because these cells are growing and responding to the estrogen. So that's where tamoxifen comes in. Okay. If a woman is, is premenopausal, they will oftentimes suggest tamoxifen because it blocks estrogen receptors. The typical time that a woman is put on tamoxifen is either for five years or until they reach menopause. So you can talk to any number of people and get different statistics about how effective tamoxifen is, but it's a pretty common recommended treatment coming out of active treatment, and it's recommended to take that for five years. Now, once a woman passes menopause, then they recommend they go on something called an aromatase inhibitor. Aromatase is one of those enzymes in the body that that actually converts testosterone into, I believe it's testosterone into estrogen. So it increases the amount of estrogen in your body. So they're trying to block aromatase, which is the enzyme that allows that to happen. So so like in my case, I was told to go on tamoxifen for five years or until I hit menopause and then go on an aromatase inhibitor for five years. So it was a 10-year plan. You know, my husband was thrilled because one of the things that both of, you know, one of the things that tamoxifen does is gives you early signs of um, menopause because it's blocking estrogen. Decreasing the estrogen in your body causes uh, chemical menopause. So it's like, so you're going into menopause symptoms early, you go through real menopause, and then you've got this post-menopause. So it's the 10-year, you know, menopause plan. What they found, one of the risk factors with tamoxifen is that it can play a role in other cancers that are estrogen-mediated, and one of those is endometrial cancer. So I've known people who take tamoxifen 
as a prevention and it's actually been a factor or a cause in developing breast cancer. So it's not a benign treatment, but it is a very common treatment. So it's one of those things that, that once again, I really recommend women have a very detailed and involved conversation with their doctor about what the plan is and you know, make a decision from there. It's not a treatment that is without its side effects. It also has other known side effects, such as increasing your chance of stroke. It, they think it may increase your chance of a heart attack. You know, so it, there's a lot of risk factors to going on that kind of estrogen blocking medication that people need to know about. And I feel kind of strongly about that because I went on that, you know, because I was told that was the plan and I wasn't aware. No one ever, my doctors didn't inform me that these other things were actually, that's the thing with all of this is that, you know, it may make sense for you to do a treatment, but, you know, like with breast implants, they're not telling women that they're, you know, what the potential health consequences are that are negative with tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. They're not necessarily telling you, well, this is increasing your chances of other health problems. They're just saying, well, this is what to take. And so it really, if there's anything I can encourage women to do is just really become as educated and informed as possible. All right. Before we shut it down for this episode, the next episode we're going to go into, I believe, now what? How do I fix this? And we're going to go into some alternative medicine treatments or, which neither of us really love that word, but, you know, things that we can do to help the process of taking care of this situation. Do you have anything else you want to add before we close it down for today? Well, I think in terms of thinking about treatment, one of the things that, that I think is good to think about is the spectrum. Because, you know, women are going to be at different places in the spectrum. You know, there's, you know, the way I think about it is pre-cancer. There are women who are very concerned about their risk of cancer. Angelina Jolie, as you mentioned earlier, carries the BRCA1 gene. That is a genetic mutation that most women with breast cancer or who are concerned about breast cancer are going to have tested. And it's a genetic predisposition or it's a, it's a genetic trait that can predispose you to breast cancer. It actually significantly increases your chance, I believe, um, you know, like 500% of actually getting breast cancer. So there are a number of women who have chosen to have their breasts removed before they have to deal with the issue of cancer. And, you know, the women I have known that have done that have usually lost their moms or a close relative at a young age, and they don't want to go through that, and they choose to have what they call a prophylactic mastectomy. It's a pretty extreme choice, but it's a choice that women need to make. And like in Angelina Jolie's case, her mother died at the age of 49 of breast cancer. She has six kids. Her choice to be alive for her children outweighed, you know, and her fear of, of developing it outweighed the very difficult decision she made to have her breast removed. That's a, that's a situation that I don't think anybody has the right to second guess when a woman is making that choice. Um, that's a highly personal choice and whatever course a woman chooses to take is, you know, is, is theirs to make. So there's that stage. Then there's the stage of when you're first diagnosed. 
you know, that's, uh, that presents all the challenges. Some of them we've talked about, about making decisions and, you know, figuring out, you know, uh, your tumor presentation and that kind of thing. Then there are issues that come up when you're in treatment, you know, that um, a lot of what we can do from a holistic, more functional medicine perspective is actually support people through that process. There's a lot of very common complications that come up. One of them hugely is nutrition. People who are going through chemotherapy, I mean, I think people are not surprised to hear that people have very serious side effects, nausea and vomiting and weight loss, and, you know, they can't tolerate food. So that's actually a major consideration when someone's going through treatment. And then one area, and as I uh, said in the beginning, that I think is often, it's like a wasteland that women are thrown into is what you do after treatment. You know, you're not in active chemo and radiation anymore, but you're not well either. You know, they may have told you, you don't have to come back for any more chemotherapy treatments, but you know, you're exhausted and you're tired and you have a hormonal imbalance and, you know, have all these symptoms But I have not experienced that there's a lot of support in that phase. You know, it's just like, well, you know, your health will come back eventually. Well, that's where I think we can make huge impact. You know, if if you're a health coach or a practitioner, I think that's an area not only that you can make a huge impact in helping women recover from those symptoms, but I can tell you any woman or any person who has actually gone through breast cancer, they live in mortal fear that every ache and pain and bump and pimple they get is a recurrence of cancer. Um, it's, it's very common. Of course it would be. You know, people have just gone through maybe, you know, this horrific experience and then they're afraid it's going to come back. And really helping people implement some of these lifestyle changes around nutrition, re- reduction of toxins, stress management, sleep, peace of mind, you know, those are huge areas where not only we can help, but those things are actually known to affect someone's overall health. You know, addressing those things is the health plan that we need to focus on after the disease management plan that you just came out of when you were in chemotherapy and radiation. And I think, the, you know, not to mention that cancer is a hugely disempowering experience. You know, oftentimes you just feel like you're a ping pong going from treatment to treatment and doctor's appointment, and you do not have a sense of empowerment or control in your life. So post-treatment, those are things that we can absolutely help people with. We can absolutely help them understand that what they're eating and what they're exposing themselves to and stress management, all of those things can give them that sense of power and control back in their lives and improve their overall health outcomes. I've heard one cancer integrative doctor describe it as creating a terrain where cancer cannot thrive. And that's what we can do to empower people is do everything in our power to address these other issues so that you create a body and an environment where cancer doesn't have the chance to thrive. And so it's a huge opportunity, regardless of the choices that people make in terms of treatment, I think there's a huge area of education and empowerment that we can address once they come out of treatment. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So that's my big soapbox. That's, yeah, that's the good. area that I specialize in. That's good. And that's and and that's exactly why you do what you do and I do what I do. Exactly. Is to say, okay, you're at this part. Let's get you on a path and create a path for you, a, a lifestyle path, not just a diet. Right. To to reverse whatever disease or cancer you have living in your body. 
I, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. So very well done. And, and uh, as always, my friend, I'm looking forward to part three. Yes, yes. Um, this is such a rich area. One last thing I just want to mention is that in my experience, mostly what people know about nutrition comes through the lens of weight loss and weight loss diets. And for any number of reasons, which could be a whole episode unto itself, those things are unhealthy and, you know, actually create other problems. But in working with people, it's really important to understand that the only thing they may know about nutrition comes down to whether or not they're going to lose weight. They don't know the difference between a protein and a carbohydrate. They just know if it's a calorie, you know, and, and a lot of that information is inaccurate and misguided. But these, these things are really huge opportunities to really teach people about what nutrition is, you know, and, and why fruits and vegetables matter and why organic foods matter and why eating good oils in your diet makes a huge difference. Because if you remember, I had a, a, a patient recently say, well, I don't know about the carbohydrates and the proteins. I just know the number of calories it is. And that's the perspective that a lot of people come from. So there's a huge opportunity for us to teach people what we consider to be really basics of sound nutrition. Right. And it's huge in cancer because if someone is calorie restricting themselves, that's probably the worst thing you can do if you're fighting cancer. You need nutrients. You need energy. You need to mobilize your body's immune system. And you're not going to do that if you're on a calorie restricted you know, diet with poor nutrients. It's a huge area of a way that we can empower. And with sugar. I mean, I keep thinking of Pac-Man when I think about this, but that game, that Pac-Man game. But yeah, definitely. Fueling your body with sugar is like just feeding cancer. It's like going to a crocodile or an alligator farm in Florida and throwing fish in there. Well, this is one thing that I was actually at a benefit last week and I started talking to a young woman whose mother unfortunately died of recurrent breast cancer. And uh, I was talking to this young woman and I was talking to her about cancer. And what I said to her, which has been proven, is that a cancer cell, which is a mutated cell by definition, they develop a whole world unto themselves that operate differently from normal cells in our body. And one of the things that cancer cells develop in order to thrive and grow is a particularly, you know, breast cancer and, and prostate cancer is they develop more estrogen receptors. So it goes back to what we were talking about, about estrogen, because they need estrogen for growth. And they develop significantly more insulin and glucose receptors on the surface of the cell, because that's what they need to grow and metastasize is glucose or, you know, sugar in our diets, which Yet many things convert to blood glucose, but basically they need that glucose for growth. So if there's one thing that you can teach people who are concerned about recurrence and metastasis, it's to start eating a low glycemic, low sugar, low carbohydrate diet. And this woman, this young woman said something really interesting to me. I was talking to her about that. And she said, oh my God, my mother went through cancer treatment. She was in remission. And she said she didn't even have a sweet tooth, but there came a day when, you know, for about three months, all she craved was sugar, candy, and sweets. And she said, and within two months of that happening, we found out that she had a recurrence of cancer. And I was like, wow, that was so powerful to me that cancer cells 
cancer growth in her body was causing her to crave sugar because that's what they need for growth. So if there's one thing you can do to empower your patients is really teach them a low glycemic, low sugar diet. All right. Uh, We did get interrupted by the birds so much today. Yes, I, I gave them uh, seeds and toys in their in their oh, cage, right. so they They're forgot happy. about me for the minute. <laughs> maybe we can get them, maybe we can get them on the ne- next episode. Oh, I'm sure we can. All I'm right, sure thanks we can. so much, Deborah, for taking the time out today. I'm much appreciated, and much love to you. And enjoy your uh, Labor Day weekend and uh, on the Big Island. And we'll talk to you in episode three. Great, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. All right, bye bye. Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.